and welcome. And I would like to invite all of you who are sitting a little far to the back to come farther forward if you would like to. This is going to be an intimate evening of give and take among the poets and all of you. So do come and, and uh, join us farther toward the front. I'm Eileen Ward, and I'm very happy to welcome you and our guests here this evening on behalf of New York University and the Poetics Institute. Penn is my favorite international organization, and English poetry is my favorite British import. Really, if we're going to put things in perspective, English poetry has probably been Britain's leading export to America ever since 1783. It's a safe bet that more people in this country read or have read some English poetry, especially if we include Shakespeare, than drink English tea, which of course isn't really English, or drive British cars or wear British tweeds. <coughs> However that may be, the heritage of the English language and English, English poetry is one of the most important bonds holding our two nations together in friendship whether the politicians recognize it or not. As a great English poet wrote only 20 years after 1783, we must be free or die who speak the tongue that Shakespeare spoke, which holds as true for both of us today as it did in 1803 or 1783. So it is good to have this opportunity to meet four of the leading poets of today from England, Wales, and Scotland, and to hear some of their poems. Now to introduce our guests, Danny Absey, Patricia Beer, Gavin Ewart, and Craig Rain, I will turn the meeting over to Richard Howard, who needs, of course, no introduction to you. A Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, distinguished translator of Baudelaire and many other French writers, and as author of Alone with America, one of our leading critics. Richard? I think I do need an introduction, but I'm going to forego it because I, uh, I, want, to, I want very quickly to get to, our, to ask our, our guests uh, a few questions and, and, and let them do, as it were, the talking. It, it's difficult always to to startle British poets out of their characteristic reserve and, and to oblige them um, to, to speak to us. And uh, even more difficult, I think, thus cavernously housed, uh, we would rather have had you in the more intimate uh, premises of Penn, but we were unable to persuade the Salma Gundy Club this evening to let us, uh, let us have our own uh, quarters. So we're here, and um, I, as you see, the. The poets are arranged before you from uh, uh, the far end, of course, Patricia Beer, um, Gavin Ewart, uh, Craig Rain, and nearest to me, Danny Absey. And uh, the, you have been presented with various kinds of programs and identifications of these four poets who have been in New York now for several days, um, reading around and performing. Uh, they go to Washington and to other places similarly to perform. And um, this evening we have an opportunity 
to catch them perhaps in a slightly uh, different aspect. Uh, you are aware that our cultures are often described as, as uh, two cultures, uh, as it were, divided by a common language. And uh, we, it's an old canard, and uh, a useful one in relation to uh, the difficulties and differences and separations of British and American poetry. I would like to, to ask a question of our four guests, uh, and uh, if I can, from the question, uh, oblige them, not oblige, but persuade, even induce them from a seated posture to reply to it, then maybe we can even generate some kind of conversation among them. Uh, if not, I will ask a second question and a third until I have convinced them at last uh, to, to speak. It is much easier for me to speak than for them. Uh, I am on home ground and uh, uh, I do not feel the, the alienation uh, of uh, a savage turf. But I, I would like to begin by pointing out that in 1910, um, the year that Virginia Woolf said the 20th century really began. Uh, in 1910, the American poet Robert Frost left England. Uh, and uh, between 1910 and about 1980, when Robert Lowell, the American poet, left England, it's actually uh, something like that, the late 70s, um, there is a, a, a long period uh, of uh, extraordinary alienation and silence between American poetry and British poetry. And it seems to me, and I'm putting this question very tendentiously to our four um, distinguished and urbane and reserved poets, uh, it seems to me that uh, the silence that covers American poetry from the British perspective of about 70 years, maybe 60 years, between 1910, uh, when there was not such a separation between British and American poetry, when it was easy to move, let's say, from an Edward Thomas to a Robert Frost, uh, and back and forth, uh, to 19, let's just for convenience sake say 1980, uh, when our perhaps most uh, uh, convulsively vivid energy in American poetry, Robert Lowell, left uh, England and returned to America, uh, and shortly thereafter died. Uh, there, in that period of some 70 years, uh, there seems to me to be an almost uh, uh, something like a cultural blackout uh, as far as a British perspective of American work. Now, I may be, I am hoping that I'm mistaken and that indeed there may be even an American blackout about British work of the same period, but I think not. I think if you asked even the American poets that are in the audience whom I recognize and the ones that I know about their reading during the same period, um, it would not be the case. And what I want to put to our four poets, and I'm going to ask them to speak in response to my somewhat tendentious proposition as they are seated, that is Patricia, Gavin, Craig, and Danny, I'm going to ask them to, to respond, first of all, is this so? 
is there a kind of, um, of uh, obfuscation or in general uh, an erasure of an American presence in the minds of the only people in the world who speak the same language? Uh, or am I mistaken about that and we, there is some other reason for my thinking that British poets do not read America or have not for 60 years read American poetry? Patricia. I think you're mistaken. Um, I certainly, um, myself, and, and uh, I speak for myself and, and those whose reading habits I know, um, I've always read American poetry um, as much as I've read English poetry. Uh, sometime or other in the dialogue, I'd love to know your reasons for assuming we haven't. Uh, because, because I certainly have, and so have my friends. Well, I, I'll propose a reason uh, if I'm forced to, but I want, in a sense, to uh, force things the other direction. I would rather hear what you have to say. You think I'm simply wrong about this? Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Gavin? Well, when I was 16 in 1932 and just beginning to be really seriously interested in poetry, the poets I read were called T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, and they had more influence on me than anybody had had before, and in many ways, until I began to read Auden, they influenced me more profoundly than anybody. So I think one could say that American poets influenced British poets if they came to Britain. That may be the thing, because I certainly never read Oscar Williams. <laughs> Sorry, not Oscar Williams, because he's the anthologist. I mean the other one. <laughs> William, William Carlos, Carlos Williams. Williams, yes, right. Scared never, me there for a moment. I'm sorry, I never heard of him. <laughs> I never heard of him. And, I mean, I have heard of him now, of course, and I have read him. But uh, I, th I think there was a gap and I would like to try and remind myself of the next American poet that I ever came across. Um, in the 30s, I think people like Frederick Prokosch, who is now possibly unknown. No, uh, no. Immediately after the war, Robert Penn Warren, and I do remember sending to the States to try and buy one of his books, and th this was a very difficult, dangerous, and expensive exercise in those days. So. American poetry was not unknown to me, but I didn't know an awful lot of it, and I couldn't honestly lay my hand on my heart and say that I'd read an equal amount of American poetry as I have British poetry. Um, I mean, even now, and I'm, I'm very keen on a lot of American poetry, but uh, I think there has been a slight gap, and one can understand why, because people on the spot read the poets on the spot, and that really accounts for it in the first place. It's only when somebody says to you, well, so-and-so is a very good poet in America, why don't you read him, and so on, that you begin to be interested. And so, um, I think I could say that my knowledge of American poetry is not great, but I hope very much that the American poets that I've read are good ones. I mean, I've also read Edwin Arlington Robinson and all sorts of others whom, whose names I can remember. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not ignorant uh, entirely. Thank you. 
But I, I'll just continue the uh, roll call or roster before I, I uh, try to provoke other kinds of conversation, Craig. In a way, I think you're right, actually. Um, I mean, I think there is a, a great deal of ignorance and prejudice. I'll, I'll give you, uh, Gavin has just mentioned Edward Arlington Robinson. Um, about four weeks ago, um, I was having lunch with Jeffrey Grigson, who used to edit New Verse and was very influential in establishing Auden in England. And um, as the lunch wore on, I said to him, um, are there any American poets you admire? And he said, no, I don't think so. Um, there is one. Um, what the hell's his name? Um, and I said, um, do, you, do you admire Lurley? He said, no, no, no. <laughs> um, Berryman, no. Um, and, and so on and so forth. Randall Jarrell, no. And he said, it'll come to me. I'm terribly old. It's very hard <laughs> to remember these names. And then finally, um, he had to ask his wife, who was upstairs, um, typing out. She's a cookery writer, very nice woman. And she was upstairs typing her piece out for the, um, the London Observer. And he shouted up the stairs. He shouted, um, Jane? Who's that American I like? <laughs> she shouted down, Edward Arlington Robinson. <laughs> I said, that's the chap. <laughs> um, Grigson is also famous for describing Wallace Stevens as a, a stuffed goldfinch. Um, um, I don't know what, what, I mean, I think, in other words, I think actually that, that there is some truth in, in, in what Richard is stating actually over tendentiously. I mean, I think there is a prejudice. Um, there was an English critic called F.W. Bateson, I don't know whether anyone's ever heard of him over here, um, who I think wrote to the Times Literary Supplement um, in London about the way American rhythms were different from um, English rhythms, as though there was um, something actually different in the ear. Um, and he, again, singled Stevens out as an example of a man who couldn't read his own poetry. Um, uh, I've heard Stevens read, too, myself. I mean, Harvard produced something like three years ago a, a series of cassettes called The Poet's Voice. And it is actually very, very odd to hear Stevens and to hear Berryman um, reading their work. Um, this is work that, you've, of, of course, a, 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 as a poet, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with. To hear them read it, it actually sounds very, very different um, to the way you'd imagined it. And I think that may be um, one of the causes that um, actually, although we share the language, um, we speak it slightly differently. And I don't mean just particular words. I mean intonations, um, so that I can find myself in a bar saying something to a barman. Um, and he just about understands me, but actually says afterwards, are you French? <laughs> um, or cab, cab drivers, you know, quite often don't understand what you say. Um, and I find that what you have to do is slightly draw what you're saying and kind of mumble it a bit. Um, and then they understand it much better. But the rhythms are, are different. So I, I, um, I would have thought this might work both ways, that um, English poetry might not travel. Um, for instance, Betjeman is, is, is a writer in England um, who's regarded very highly by very distinguished people. Um, Auden admired him, Philip Larkin admires him, um, lots of people have admired Betjeman, but he doesn't go down in the States at all. And I suspect this is because um, there's something rhythmically English about Betjeman, and, 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 and that, that accounts for it. Um, what other notes have I got here? Well, Prokosh, um, whom Gavin said is practically unknown. Um, the publishing firm I work for is about to do his autobiography, I think. Yes, it's um, come out here. In three volumes. Mm. Um, th there are people who, who've actually gone on, I think. Um, 
um, and they've been published in England. Um, Marianne Moore, Wallace Stevens, um, Elizabeth Bishop, whom I think is the great star of your um, um, poetry in the 20th century, leaving out Pound and Elliot. Um, I think of, 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 as it were, um, recently dead poets. I mean, the very recent past, I think she's absolutely a giant, um, um, a tiny but almost completely perfect output. Um, uh, William Carlos Williams, well, it's very difficult to buy Carlos Williams in England. I have um, Patterson, for instance, but it was brought to me as polished by New Directions, I think, over here, and was brought to me from America. You, you have to ask for this. It's not published in England. Um, it is published in England, is it? Um, this is about 10 years ago. Um, um, but it's certainly not well distributed. Um, and um, I don't know who's to blame for that. <laughs> no, we're not going to cast blame or slap wrists here. But we are going to try to determine what the situation is. Danny, do you? Well, first of all, I was thinking how I once went to a lecture by Joyce Carey, who at the end, uh, the novelist, who asked, when they asked for questions, he said, can I have three? And then he chose the one he liked best. Uh, but the, the um, I, I, first of all, just to, if I miss a quarrel, small quarrel with Craig Rain, uh, of course, Carlos Williams has been uh, published uh, in Penguin. He's been M. L. Rosenthal's uh, uh, reader has been published. So uh, Carlos Williams is quite well known, to, uh, or should be well known to those people in Britain. I think there's a great deal of substance in what you say, in fact, Richard. But uh, this is part, partly rooted in post-war uh, decade of the 50s, where there was a a particular toxin, I think, of of insularity, British insularity, where you uh, got uh, the feeling where um, uh, Kingsley Amis would uh, feel that uh, wogs began in Calais and that there was no good literature outside Britain. I, 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 uh, I think in the, uh, later on there was a reaction towards uh, this little islander view and uh, indeed um, in the late 60s and 70s, we, uh, there was a sort of self-denigration by British poets, and so that we had Lowell, and we had Sylvia Plath, and we had Anne Sexton, and we had Berryman, in which, in fact, uh, there was a certain primacy of, of American poets. I, uh, at the moment, it's, um, I'm, uh, there are plenty of poets who are not known, good American poets who are not known in uh, Britain, of course, but equally, there are many uh, poets in Britain who are not known over here. Yes, now uh, uh, the, it is interesting that none of the four poets even mentioned Robert Frost and uh, it's for us uh, uh, that is a giant name and a giant figure. Well, I take it, it doesn't seem that way for you. No, I, I, would, I think we'd all agree that Robert Frost is a giant figure, wouldn't we? Yes, I would. Yes, yes. Absolutely. But so, so on the other but hand... But like all giant figures, you know, not much progeny. Um, but, but Edward Thomas, you see, is somebody that is not too well known over in America and whom we also think is a giant figure. Right. Uh, now that I've, in a sense, uh, uh, got the foam out of the bottle, I want to ask uh, the British poets a little bit about their view uh, in relation to their own work. I, I felt it was necessary to clear the air or the static even perhaps my own mind about this question of um, the perspective of American poetry from Britain. But um, the next question is um, more, uh, in a sense, for them, not for you. Uh, it goes like this. 
from America, it looks as if there are two kinds of contemporary English poetry. One of them uh, is related to the perspective that uh, you e evoke or suggest when you mention um, Sir John Betjeman. That is something uh, domestic, mild, attractive, and uh, not, not uh, irreconcilable with the perspective of something called light verse. Not light as opposed to heavy, but light as opposed to dark. Uh, the other uh, kind of British poetry that we seem to see over here is something uh, that I might call, in relation to a figure like Geoffrey Hill, or the youngest of the four poets on this platform, Craig Rain, a poetry uh, that is related to mm, wild as opposed to tame. Now, uh, we uh, see British poetry as readily distributed between these two poles as something um, domestic and comely and attractive and something that makes rather larger gestures toward breaking out of such a, um, a, a notion uh, toward um, the intensely, um, how shall I say, uh, extravagant uh, and uh, a kind of poetry that used to be called, uh, in my parents' generation, romantic. Uh, does that uh, polarity or polarizing um, impulse, as I rather crudely describe it, uh, ring, as they say, a bell for you? Let's start the other way and go down. Um. Well, it is possible, of course, to, to look at those polarities from that point of view. I would say uh, a little bit about Betjeman, because, uh, of course, when uh, Craig says, uh, talks about the rhythms of Betjeman, he's really talking about the rhythms of 19th century English poetry. Uh, for instance, if you ask John Betjeman to, uh, do you know, uh, let us say, a poem by Thomas Hood, as I did asked him not such a long time ago, he recited it, and it sounded so much like Thomas Hood when he recited, he sounded so much like John Betjeman when he recited Thomas Hood. So the, the, the rhythms are common to 19th century, uh, amongst other poets. Uh, it's a tradition, an English tradition, which uh, some of your poets, I hope, share. What the problem, of course, is, is that um, there, there's many place names, uh, evocation of place names in Betjeman's poetry, which doesn't uh, perhaps travel. And you're quite right, I think, when you talk about uh, light verse uh, not being perhaps uh, quite so seriously taken in America as it is in Britain. Coleridge once remarked, uh, I think it's a marvelous definition of comedy, he once said that comedy is the blossom of the nettle. And, and the point about Betjeman is that he's an extremely sad poet, may appear light, and the best light poets, in fact, are quite tragic. And uh, I, I, there are certain American readers, I feel sure, uh, more than there are British readers, who assume that if one's being funny, one cannot be serious. And I think that, uh, that, that, that after all, when there's a difference of vocabulary as there is, then it's these nuances of humor that are missed. Uh, about 
the poles that you suggest. Um, it is possible to talk about uh, the wilder linguistic uh, language of some poets um, as opposed to the tame as you, you do, but uh, I think uh, one could equally talk about polarities in a different way. One could talk about the polarities of subject matter. Uh, for, for instance, uh, uh, earlier today, um, I don't want to go on too long, but very quickly, uh, Patricia Beer was, was reading the poems of Douglas Dunn, and uh, she read uh, poems from Terry Street, his first book. It's a, Terry Street is a name of uh, a street in Hull, and his poems are very rooted in that reality. Uh, it, it, uh, it does indeed, as she said, talk about the class differences, but it's a sort of under Milkwood without the humor. But then again, there's the, that was published in 1969, and in 1970, or round about that time, we had Crow published by Ted Hughes, which was not about common reality, and one could talk about those sort of polarities as well as linguistic ones. Well, um, obviously one recognises the, the polarity you've set up. I mean, it's in fact um, the polarity which Alvarez um, set up in um, his introduction to um, the new poetry in, what, 1970? Something like that, 1970. He published um, an anthology of, of, as it were, the young poets, um, and... Um, wrote an introduction which more or less um, dismissed all of them um, who were English. I mean, the people he admired were Lowell, um, Berriman, um, Sylvia Plath, whom he didn't in include in the first edition of it, but included later. Um, and for him, um, it really was a question of subject matter, as, as, as Danny had said, that these people seemed to Alvarez to be um, taking on the great subjects of the 20th century. Um, they were all, as it were, close to suicide. Um, they all knew about madness, um, and so on and so forth. And by comparison, um, the English poets looked rather dingy. Um, um, I actually admire Lowell and Berryman and Sylvia Plath, but I think that someone like um, Philip Larkin, for instance, who was singled out as a genteel poet, um, uh, is actually, um, I agree with Danny about Betjeman, um, I think the domestic, mild, and attractive are not adjectives I'd use um, to describe Betjeman. I think he's an extremely dark poet um, in his moments. Um, and he has comedy, too. Um, but but, but um, I think both he and Larkin can be funny and also be extremely dark. Um, but there's, there's no question that overall, I think the polarity does operate, actually. Um, if you think about the, the movement poets, um, Danny's already mentioned them. Um, uh, um, particularly Kingsley Amos, who's, who's very influential. Um, and here's a man who, who was determinedly English and, and, and provincial. We want no poems about foreign cities. We want no poems about foreign artists. We want no poems about painters and so on. Um, and I think actually what's unfortunate about this is I think Amos has written some very good poems. Um, um, but it somehow caught on in a way that was disastrous for other poets. Um, and um, I'm, I'm actually myself quite pleased at the way things are um, turning out in England at the moment. It seems to me it's possible to be much more adventurous than Kingsley Amos would have allowed. And in fact, I mean, Kingsley Amos likes the um, new poetry that, that is linguistically inventive when it comes to it. Um, the new book of um, Penguin Contemporary Verse, um, he gave the best review to of anyone in the Evening Standard. Um, so that I, th I think it's, it's always a danger to... to 
um, take people's own necessary artistic prejudices, the kind of things that enable them to write, and erect them into some sort of general scheme. And I think it happened with that. And I think it was very bad for English poetry. Yes. Well, before I <coughs> came over to New York this time, I reminded myself in bulk, as it were, very quickly of some recent American verse. And I, I read Donald Hall's anthology, uh, not all of it, but quite a lot of it. And what I found myself thinking was, well, all this American verse isn't so terribly different from British verse. And I think there's quite a, a large uh, middle ground, which is, as it were, shared by both parties. But I think where British poetry is deficient is that we don't really, by and large, have the sort of poets, uh, I suppose, Ginsberg would be a very good example. The poets who really follow the Whitman tradition and they go into overdrive and keep rolling and, uh, you know, Dylan Thomas could do it, of course, but since him, uh, we've been very, very short of such writers in Britain. And uh, the only one I can think of is Peter Redgrove, a very, I think, remarkable poet. It's mostly um, unknown here yet, Gary. Not yet known in America. No, well, that's exactly possibly why I, I mentioned him. It's a great pity that, in fact, today, all four of us were reading British poems that we liked and admired, and that nobody uh, read poems by him. But he is, in a way, a special taste, but he's also very, very good. And uh, thinking of him leads me to say the last thing I'm going to say on this time round, and that is that it's very bad for people, if they're writers, to get into the idea that they've got to write in one particular way. Uh, when Betjeman started writing in the 30s, he was absolutely against the stream. When he was writing his hymns, Ancient and Modern, about C. Day Lewis uh, leading his wolf cubs into the sick <coughs> canteen and all that. Uh, Auden and Spender were writing poems about the unemployed and the class struggle. They were the ones that everyone wanted to write like. So uh, my advice to anyone who wants to write poems in this audience, probably <laughs> you've all written millions of poems, is to not pay too much attention, A, to what's fashionable, B, to what people tell you to write, but uh, if you have any talent at all, it's far better to write what you want to write and take your influences from where you can get them. There are lots of them, they're all over the place. You can take anything from anybody and that really is the message, I think. And the polarities and the analysis, uh, that can all come later. Uh, you know, write it your own way with advice, but only take the advice that you want to take. Don't take advice that you don't want to take. Um, there's not too much left for me to say, but I'd like uh, to pick up some of those points, and particularly the one about uh, Peter Redgrove. I'd like to say why I didn't choose him uh, to read in the uh, <coughs> reading we were having this morning. Um, I didn't choose him 
simply because I felt that in 20 minutes, well, no, it would have been 10 minutes, really, because we were supposed to choose more than one. In 10 minutes, one couldn't possibly give any idea of his, his, his stature. My omission of Peter Redgrove uh, was a compliment. One, his, his um, work is so diverse, so various, that, that 10 minutes simply wouldn't do it. And I think uh, several other poets one could name weren't included this morning. I would suggest that Peter Porter was another, that one couldn't really give any true idea of their flavor in, in such a short time. I would have, I would have chosen, I think, um, Peter Redgrove and Peter Porter this morning if time had been no object. But it would just have resulted in misrepresentation, I think, to choose either of them. Um, one remark about Betjeman. Um, we've been subjected in Britain in the past few weeks to a series of um, television programs about the Poet Laureate, which I think were ill-conceived, ill-executed, and I think, I can't suppose that the whole project was designed to present the Poet Laureate as a, as a geriatric. Um, but this, in fact, um, was what happened. There was a lot of sort of pointless hee-hawing and reverent looks and remarks about mother's pride. That's a sort of awful uh, pre-sliced bread uh, going down the lane and so on. It was, the whole thing was, was really, um, well, as I say, it might have been designed um, uh, to show him in a, a pejorative light. He is an excellent example of, uh, of the way, if, if one is in well into middle age, it's so interesting to look back and, and see what has happened. When I was a girl, um, one, one laughed uh, lightly and with a certain amount of scorn when the name of Betjeman was mentioned at the, in the same breath as Auden, for example. Then, uh, due to various representations on the part of, of, of poets whose word carried weight. We were then all supposed to think he was absolutely marvellous. I do, in fact, uh, like his work very much indeed. But the tide has been turning, and I, I, don't, I can't possibly say what connection this programme has with it, but I can't believe that there wasn't some subconscious wish somewhere to undermine him in, in, this, um, in, this, in this series. Really, I can't believe it. I don't think any set of people could be so daft. And um, uh, I have noticed that I, I saw an interesting remark. Somebody quoted Larkin as saying that uh, he, was, he seemed rather annoyed that he had said that um, uh, Betjeman was as good as Eliot, and he was at great pains to point out that he had said no such thing, that he had added in their, um, uh, according to their respective stature or in their respective spheres, or something which made the comparison um, uh, completely meaningless. And sorry, one last thing. Um, I think this, the, the, this awful word polarity. I, I think sim simply what, is, what happens as people get older is that um, 
in the decades of their writing life. I mean, sometimes, sometimes they can um, be as wild as Dionysus, and sometimes they can um, sound tame and calm and mild and complacent, and uh, as though they've um, as though they've come to some kind of terms with it all. But I think that's just what happens as people get older, and as they, if you write through the course of a longish life, um, sometimes you sound like one pole, sometimes you sound like the other. It would be very odd, I think, if you sounded like one thing all the time, and I'm sure that's what happens. And I think there is a lot of willful misunderstanding. I think people are often labelled calm and mild, when in, in fact they're, they're perfect volcanoes. Yeah. Only, and, and one, seems, one often seems a volcano to oneself, when, um, and not to other people who are determinedly looking for some kind of gentility. I'm sorry, that's all a mixed bag Fine. of points, no, but no. I was rather at the end. It's, it's splendid, and it's just exactly what I wanted to hear from all I, of you. Now, my, my next uh, provocation uh, will proceed in precisely the same direction back again so that it, you will be the first person to speak to it. And I'm, I'm delighted by that because the question I think first concerns you uh, and it is this. In America in the last 35 years we are beginning to perceive uh, partly under the enlightening influence of the uh, action of, a, of an intenser feminism the contours emerging of a matriarchal line of poetry. Uh, one might say that since Gertrude Stein and Marianne Moore, we are beginning to perceive the outlines of a poetry uh, which uh, through Elizabeth Bishop, whom uh, Craig mentioned and I think correctly as the star exhibit of American poetry uh, and, and into uh, a generation of poets very active now um, like Mae Swenson and Mona Van Dyne. Uh, we, and I trust that to some extent I'm mentioning names that are not altogether familiar to you. Uh, uh, and into younger uh, poets or newer poets like the recent remarkable debut of a woman named Amy Clampett, whom I think I see signs in the audience of recognition. Uh, we, we are, I've noticed in the reviews a, a sense, uh, partly because we have a wonderful critic of poetry in America who is a woman and very eager to make this recognition, I speak of Helen Bendler, um, we have observed a, an emerging, uh, not altogether separate continent uh, of women poets who have a distinct and acknowledged connection with each other. Mae Swenson writes a poem to Elizabeth Bishop. Um, Mona Van Dyne writes a poem to Marianne Moore, etc. There is a sense of a history and a, um, a tradition, a lineage, which can be uh, handed down, which can be fondled, indeed, uh, among the poets who possess it. And, uh, I wanted to ask, starting with you, whether there is, and I'm, I'm, I'm insisting on the vulgarity of my word, polarization <laughs> in this uh, area in England, whether you feel there is a similar thing. I might point out myself that I've read Patricia Beer's poetry, and I'm astonished by the poise, the ease, the naturalness, and the unforced grace of this woman's work, where you do not feel that she is having to um, carve out, as it were, a territory of her own. There is, for an American ear, reading her poetry, 
a sense of great um, natural uh, delight in her work without a sense of uh, conquest involved. But I'm talking about conquest, about the, the, the gaining of an identity, searching for an identity the way Yeats used to say that he was searching for an image. And I wanted to ask whether you feel in England, aside from your own work, if I'm right about it, that there is such, a, such a, an impulse. Well, um, if you hadn't used the word polarization um, there, I was going to, but I'm not quite sure, because I think here it does come, come into, the, into the question. I'm not quite sure what our poles would be, as it were. I think um, I see two poles, two distinct alternatives here, because every so often in England um, we get sort of conferences and get-togethers. Um, there was one at the ICA um, not very long ago of um, feminists. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry. Um, is, this, is this better? No? Um, right, I will. Sorry. I forgot what I was saying now. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. At the ICA, um, they quite frequently have uh, conferences and readings of um, feminist poets. And I find this extremely disconcerting because there are yards and yards of names of uh, women one's never heard of and um, it is obviously considered by them to be a completely different thing, a completely different activity. Those of us who don't appear um, due for one thing to not having been asked but might very well, might very well not. In any case, I think I have never been asked to that sort of thing. Um, I have. I, so perhaps if I could speak personally, I can't feel that um, when one is writing poetry, um, gender comes into it as far as one's own personal creative process is concerned. Uh, what the poems turn out sounding like is, of course, another matter altogether and perhaps the writer can't altogether say. Um, I have written, I should think, um, three poems, if this is any help to the discussion, three poems, which I suppose you might call feminist poems, if I could just um, tell you uh, what they're about to, to give you some idea. One was when I had been greatly enraged by Yeats's remarks about the Gore Booth girls, um, who he thought looked absolutely lovely in their silk kimonos, but when they um, lit out from their father's house and indulged in various activities. Eva, of course, was um, a suffragette in England, and uh, Constance Markovitch, of course, we all know about her goings-on. And uh, Yeats's remarks in two poems about um, the way in which, well, he quite clearly 
found it difficult to like them or respect them um, once they had thrown off their silk kimonos and gone out and indulged in the world of activity. And when I was suffering from this particular fit of rage, I happened to come across some Larkin's poem addressed uh, to or, or about um, Kingsley Ames's daughter, hoping that the child would be absolutely average in every way, you know, not a rarity, not too beautiful, not too bright, because this was the, the only way for ordinary feminine happiness. Um, those, these two impulses together made me write a poem about Constance Markovitch, and, well, I won't I won't go on, I will just tell you about the other one. One which I think I would call a feminist poem was about two women um, who were rich and handsome who lived at the end of the 18th century in a house uh, very near where I come from in, in Devon in England. And um, they chose not to marry. I think it must have been choice because they must have been in demand. They were, they were handsome girls and, and very well healed. And they built themselves a house which was supposed to be an imitation of San Vitale in Ravenna. It, it doesn't look a bit like San Vitale in Ravenna, uh, but th that's, what that, that's what it was meant to be. And spent all their fruitful, fertile years making a grotto of shells. And it seems, from what one can find out about their lives, um, having a marvellous time. Uh, I am not advocating that one should abandon um, being a wife and mother and make grottos of shells, but um, the choice interested me. They were quite clearly um, happy, um, fulfilled women in as far as you can tell, but uh, you know there, if you visit the house there are various things that seem to point to this. and. Um, that, I think, has turned out to be something of a feminist poem, showing that then uh, women could decide what they, want, what they wanted to do and do it and enjoy it and um, uh, not be dependent for their happiness and fulfillment on the, necessarily on the uh, various paths that, that most of us choose. But that was because the subject matter so led me on. I do not write uh, from a feminist point of view. If these subjects occur to me, I write about them with all my heart. But um, I do not regard it as um, a declared and specific game of poetry. Uh, one, one writes poetry for other reasons that, than to convey a message. I do convey the message in my own way, in other ways, but I don't try to do it in my poetry. Uh, perhaps before the next three speakers address this issue of uh, my notion, I should reiterate that I'm talking about something which I claim quite individually to perceive in a rather favorable and even excited perspective here. I am asking whether you perceive it there. Uh, since we have these uh, blindnesses, uh, erasures, and, um, uh, and it's that that I would like you as British poets to speak to us about. 
Uh, well, if you're looking at me, uh, <laughs> I'm not a feminist, but I'm no, very, indeed. I'm very uh, uh, in favor of the philosophy, I think I would say. Naturally, I can't write feminist poems in the sense in which most of you would understand them. Uh, I think there are, in fact, I know there are feminist poets, women writers in Britain who uh, have books, anthologies published, and uh, in magazines you would find quite a lot, uh, particularly in the more avant-garde magazines, uh, such as Ambit. Ambit is roughly a vague equivalent to New Directions in Britain, and they have feminist poems uh, to quite a large extent. Uh, one very recent one said, uh, I don't altogether agree with this view. Uh, what a pity it was that uh, half the population of the world were criminals, meaning men, I think. And uh, I, uh, although I can see that this is a possible point of view, I think, I think what one must also remember when we're talking about poetry, we're not really talking about politics, is that it's fine to have politics in poetry, and perhaps there isn't enough of it, but it's not the same thing as poetry. And putting forward a point of view is something that is often better done in other ways. Now, I grew up in the 30s when there was a thing called agitprop, and all the followers of Auden and Spender were urged to write little short, sharp pieces that the workers could sing on, on demos. Now, this is all fine, but it's not very good poetry usually, uh, for obvious reasons. What can be sung on a demo is very like an advertising slogan, and they can be good or bad, but they're not usually great literature. Uh, I can't think offhand of any that are. Guinness is good for you, perhaps, but it's difficult. It's difficult to imagine that uh, the really committed political statement, and I take feminism to be a political movement. I mean, it's not just psychology and uh, working out the differences between men and women. It actually has political aims. So political poetry is a thing that personally, in Britain, again, I would like to see a lot more of because uh, I can tell you that if you send a very sexy poem to the Times Literary Supplement, you won't get it published. If you send a very political poem to the Times Literary Supplement, which makes uh, remarks unacceptable to it about Mrs. Thatcher, you won't get it published. And so I feel that there is a sort of constricting conservatism, in a sense, in the British literary scene. But I, again, you see, I think that I don't worry very much about this. If I write poems saying Thatcher's a swine, I don't send them to the TLS. <laughs> I send them to, to magazines that are sympathetic to my views, just as people who write feminist poems, naturally enough and quite rightly, they would send them to uh, a feminist magazine. But. Uh, in general, I would say this is wrong, that a good poetry magazine should encompass 
feminist poetry and political poetry of all sorts of kinds. Now, the thing that really hurts and what makes this a difficult question is when you get people writing poems from a political point of view that you don't approve of. When Pound writes lines that actually by no possible means can be construed as other than anti-Semitic in the cantos. Uh, so you have to reconcile your love of poetry with possibly the toleration of views that you don't hold yourself. I mean, that, that's just a thought, and I, I must just leave it with you, I think. Um, a matriarchal line of poetry in England. Well, I can think of feminist writers, um, or, or people who's mostly younger women, um, uh, whose poetry has that kind of slant. I, I don't think it's as programmatic as, say, the work of Marilyn Hacker um, over here. Mm -hmm. um, but Penelope Shuttle, Carol Rumans, Vicky Fever um, are three names I've written down um, who are preoccupied in this kind of way. Um, I don't find, I don't think any of them are particularly good poets. The um, woman who translates Akhmatova? Uh, oh, Elaine Feinstein. Feinstein. I shouldn't have said that Elaine was a, a, a particularly feminist poet, not really. Um, I think it's mostly the, the younger poets now who are writing this way. Um, and I don't think any of those um, are actually um, that good as poets. And if, if uh, what I'm really trying to say is I think that poetry is, is, is actually about words. Um, um, it's not about a, um, a program. And if um, the name you mentioned, Amy Clampett, I mean, uh, if Amy Clampett is any good, um, it won't be because she shares her views with um, five million other people. Uh, it'll be because she's different. And it, to pick up Gavin's point about Auden and Spender in the 30s, where th there was, as it were, a given subject matter, which was dictated um, largely by Auden. Auden, of course, is the great giant there. Um, Spender is, is, is a much less good poet, because he's got less linguistic gifts than Auden. Um, and finally, um, poetry comes down to that. And, and that links up with Gavin's point about Ezra Pound, who's gifted with an absolutely marvellous ear and completely atrocious political views. Um, but it's not the, the, the views you hold that make you a good poet, um, in my view. It, it wasn't the question, though, was it, about, about views and feminism. I just thought it was a, a general a question about women poets. And, and uh, I, I uh, don't think there's any woman critic of note in Britain like Helen Wendler. And in fact, uh, uh, leaving uh, uh, Patricia aside, there's, there's, there's no woman poet like uh, Elizabeth Bishop uh, in Britain. The extraordinary thing is that uh, I think, again, you know, as Craig said, you begin with words. And the interesting thing about most of the women, all the women, I think, writing, in fact, in Britain at present, is that they don't really begin with words. You know, Dylan Thomas once talked about those poets who begin with words and those who work towards words. And uh, so many of the women poets, it seems to me, uh, work towards words. It's often a translation of prose ideas. Uh, and that's why so many of them seem to me uh, utterly paraphrasable, including even good poets like uh, Fleur Adcock and uh, a poet perhaps even my colleagues don't know from Wales, who's very good. I like and enjoy her, a young poet called Sheena Pugh. 
uh, or, or Vicky Fever, as you say. Um, the interesting thing, I think, is that there are many, many women novelists. Uh, you, one might, it, it, you, one, somebody has said, a good women novelist in Britain, and uh, somebody has said, well, that's because most of the people who read novels are women. But I don't think that's so, because so many of the people who sensitively read poetry are women. Uh, I think that's enough for me to say. I think that's a very good point, actually, about the women novelists. I mean, if, if women are finding themselves in English literature at the moment, it definitely is in fiction. I mean, um, mm. they're winning hands down. I don't think that we have to be worried about them. Oh, um, I don't think there's a question of winning or losing, but before <laughs> I come down again with my next uh, in, in, interrogative uh, outrage, I just want to make sure that Patricia doesn't wish to speak to this, uh, to no. what's been said. No, no. thank you. Um, very well. One further perspectivizing, as, as Nietzsche would say, that I would like to put to you is this. From an American point of view, uh, our poetry has, in the last 35 years, been stimulated, fertilized, outraged, and assisted by enormous bodies of translated work. Uh, American translators uh, of the last 35 years have found that uh, the presentation of European work, South American work, the work of what we were perhaps carelessly called primitive poetry or archaic poetry, poetry of um, archaic song, poetry of cultures that were not previously available to us, have all been in some way available now been assimilable, or even by not being assimilable, have proposed possibilities which uh, offer us a kind of moral perspective on what it is that we're doing, uh, which has become, for most of the American poets, especially those younger than myself, uh, an enormous body of suggestion and resource. Is there, has there been a similar kind of um, response to what is not at home, not under one's hand in England. May I ask the question starting at this end again? Well, um, I think just before, before during the war, uh, I can remember there were plenty of translations you'd see in every bookshop, something like Rainer Maria Rilke, or you'd see books by Kafka. But during that period that I mentioned earlier about this British insularity, uh, in character with that, you would suddenly find that uh, people were no longer reading Rilke, people weren't even reading Kafka. In 1964, uh, 1963, I remember presenting a program of European, modern European poetry in the Royal Court Theatre. And I can remember even a, a poet, uh, who, a friend of Gavin's, uh, Roy Fuller, being utterly surprised by hearing poems by Lorca, as uh, big new Herbert, uh, people of this kind, and uh, being surprised and delighted uh, by such uh, poetry. And uh, I think, uh, in, indeed, uh, I am delighted uh, uh, that I was an editor of a small book, Vista book, paperback book, called Modern European Verse in 1964, when it wasn't common in Britain to have uh, European poetry uh, sort of broadcast, as it were. Since then, have been innumerable uh, that not only have there been the Penguin Modern Poets, which have been extremely valuable, but there have been innumerable translations. And there may be some people now who think that there are too many translations, and that some people are imitating too much. That uh, some of the poems that are being written in English are too much like translations and the individual poem. 
we have a magazine in England called Poetry and Translation. I mean, I, um, um, so that it, it does happen. Um, if I can turn Frost against Richard Howard for, for a minute. Frost once said that poetry is, is that which is... Um, <laughs> no? Um, lost lost, lost, lost in translation. Yes, but we know um, Goethe I, said poetry is what remains after <laughs> translation, and I always thought Goethe was smarter than Frost. Well, I think actually there's truth in both, you see. This is really what I want to say. It seems to me that um, there are certain poets, um, Miroslav Holub, Vasco yeah. Popper, Zabolotsky, um, Zbigniew Herbert, that, that have already been mentioned. Um, these are poets with um, often a political content, or, um, I mean, I think of a Holub poem called The Fly, yes, um, which is absolutely stunning in translation. It, I can't remember who translated it, but it's a very, very good translation. Um, and for some reason, um, you feel that um, the, the verbal texture has actually somehow miraculously been preserved. Um, um, so I think that these, the, 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 the poets I've named, Holub, Popper, Zabolotsky, Herbert, um, and I'm sure there are others that I, I can't think of just, just at the moment, um, are writers that, 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 that um, you can learn from in translation. And I think a poet like Ted Hughes, for instance, has learned a great deal from all of these people in translation. Indeed, he's, he's translated some of them. I mean, he tra translated Yehuda Amakai, um, for instance. Um, but I think it always depends on the quality of the translation, really, um, and partly on the quality of the, what kind of poetry it is. And I think it's very hard to lay down um, a general law one way or the other. I mean, I've read Holub translations, which I think are absolutely marvelous, and they, they read in English as though they're English poems. Um, but if this was generally true, I don't think someone like Lowell um, would have done his imitations volume, um, where he's taken so ma many more liberties um, with the literal text in order to create, as he says in his preface, something which is a poem in English. And I think we've all of us read um, many translations um, which are not poetry anymore. Um, something is utterly gone, and I'd, I'd, I'd simply leave it there. Um, um, as Danny has said, Penguin Books have done a, a marvelous job of making lots of poetry available. Um, but I myself, for instance, um, read Rilke in translation. My German isn't good enough. Um, and I get nothing from Rilke. Um, I got a lot more from Lowell's translation of, of, uh, of Rilke. Um, and I assume it was you know, um, done with massive distortion um, in order to get something across. I don't feel I've read Rilke when I read Lowell's um, imitation of Rilke. I feel I've read a Lowell poem. Um, I think actually you're very lucky if you're a practicing poet and you do find you can get anything very much from a really foreign writer. It does happen. Uh, it, it only happened to me once and by accident because I was translating a lot of Italian, one of the languages of which I have a shaky hold. And this was for the London magazine. And this wasn't Italian prose, these were all Italian poets, so that I had uh, translations of Montale, a wonderful poet, Ungaretti and Casimodo, who were then the sort of trinity in the 50s and 60s of Italian poetry. But also there's a poet called Sereni, and I'd never heard of him. I, I dare say perhaps some of you haven't heard of him. But when I read his poems, it seemed to me that this was a way of writing a poem. It's only a way that you can learn. You can't learn techniques usually, because 
uh, techniques often don't translate. But it was the fantastic element in Sereni's verse, which actually did have some effect on me. And I wrote one or two poems in the 60s, which have, I think, this sort of dreamlike quality. And uh, I consciously went after it. But I think it's very difficult to get an actual usable something from a foreign writer, because generally it's so, so different. Uh, I could never write poems, for example, about the political situation in uh, Eastern Europe. I've been to Yugoslavia for 10 days, but I don't regard that as a qualification. And therefore, uh, there are whole areas, political areas, from which Western people, I think, are cut off. And unless you've experienced these things, it would be very spurious for me to sit down and write a poem about concentration camps or about anything that was really of great importance and tragic significance to people in other countries. Uh, I think you can get into a certain kind of bogusness, imitation feeling. And we have had a few poets of that kind uh, in England who wrote poems about Vietnam, about which they felt very strongly. But really, they're writing them from armchairs, as it were. They weren't in Vietnam. They weren't being bombed. They weren't fighting, and so on. I think that sort of verse is possibly, in the end, a little bit dishonest. So I, myself, although I'm very against insularity, I think one should read everything one has time to read. But it's not going to be so useful to you if you're a writer, probably, to read uh, a lot of European poets unless you really like them. However, as I say, you may suddenly find that one of them does spark you off. And I think Sereni did with me. Um, the only other thing I can say, which is a rather uh, ridiculous anecdote, I, I once had to translate at very short notice in about a day three poems by Pasolini, because he was reading uh, at an international poetry festival in London. And in one of these poems, they were all very political poems, and one line was written in capitals. I now remember, I don't remember what it said, but it had at the end the word uno in Italian, which of course means one. But because I did this so quickly and in such a fever of haste, I thought this was about the United Nations organization, <laughs> UNO, which of course in Italian is ONU, isn't it? Organizzazione, uh, whatever it is. Nazi, Nazi, Nazione Uniti. So uh, I wrote a marvelous line in capitals, you said, for this 
particular little bit of the Pasolini poem. And the man who was reading the, the poem was Charles Osborne, one of the Arts Council people in London, read this out. And Pasolini was absolutely furious. <laughs> I, had to, I had to leave the building before he could get hold of me on that. <laughs> so, I mean, you can make big mistakes. <laughs> that's, yes. that's all I'd say there. <laughs> Um, there's really only one thing I can add to that, and this is to uh, bring in the novel again. I cannot thoroughly enjoy uh, novels in translation, not even the great Russian novels, because I know all the time, and I can't put it out of my mind, that these were not the words they used. And with I mean, with a novel, obviously, you, you, you get the story and the gist of some of the conversation. Though, I mean, you, you often come across things that are quite clearly meant to be witty, which aren't in translation, um, and, and other difficulties of that kind. But with, with poetry, I, I, I feel it completely impossible thoroughly to immerse oneself or become involved in poetry and translation. I do uh, read quite widely in all the anthologies and I've read all the authors that have been named in translation, desperately trying um, not to be ignorant and insular, but I really think I've been wasting <laughs> my time because um, if, I mean, if <coughs> words that are not the words that the poets wrote, uh, you lose all the ambiguity, you lose the sound and you lose the rhythm. And if you've lost those things, I really can't see that beyond a sort of academic interest, there's, there's anything left. I can't read uh, poetry and translation for anything like um, enjoyment or involvement. And, and that's all I can say about that. Thank you. I, I think you've all expressed a, a difference of perspective that is one that I was hoping to, to air or expose even between you, among yourselves and the American poets who might be said to be your equivalents. Before I ask my final question, uh, uh, Danny wanted to return to the start. Well, I, I, yeah, just I, I partly want to ask uh, Patricia a question if she's ever read the Bible in Hebrew or in English. Uh, the, this <laughs> the, but I, I really want to, if you allow me to permit, permit me to say two very short, uh, self-directed anecdotes. Uh, the um, first one, in fact, uh, like so many other poets here, I've been to Strug in Yugoslavia, and uh, uh, they translate one poem of yours, and it's read all over the place. A poem that of mine that was being read went over two pages. After a certain length of time, <coughs> they lost one page. Uh, and they just read uh, the single page, and Seamus Heaney, who was with me, said, now I know that poetry is that which is lost in translation. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that, um, since I mentioned Hebrew, uh, uh, there was a poem of mine, that lines that go, the streets of Germany are clean like the hands of Lady Macbeth, which were translated, I gather, into Hebrew, the streets of Germany were clean like the hands of Mrs. Macbeth, which is not quite the same. <laughs> and just as uh, T.S. Eliot, in fact, as a cold coming we had of it just at the wrong time of the year was translated into we had a cold coming <laughs> just at the wrong time of the year. Of course, they're terrible mistakes, but it adds to the humor of life, does it not? 
can yeah, I then. can I briefly heal this rift? I think you know, insofar as it exists, I think there's justice on both sides of the question. If any of you have read Pasternak in Russian, you will know that um, the music and the assonance and his use of alliteration and so on is. Um, an English equivalent would be something like um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think Pasternak is untranslatable. I really do. Um, uh, and I think if you, if you think about a poet like Holub, for instance, um, he is just so much more direct. And I think the, 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 the thing you can learn from Holub is how valuable, as it were, prose attack is or can be in poetry. Um, and, and this makes him easier to translate. You, you have not healed the rift, but you have pointed to its existence. <laughs> uh, my last question, and, and we will close here, is uh, a subject that the four poets before you have, in a sense, elicited themselves. And I think it's partly because they are British that they have done so. And therefore, I, I think it's appropriate that I, that I ask them about it. Uh, in America, there is no such thing as a poet who is an all-round literary person. Our poets are poets in an extraordinarily exclusive way, uh, and our finest poets are only poets, and they, uh, there are very few exceptions, and the exceptions rather point up the generality. Uh, our poets write poetry. They do not write novels. Uh, they do not write essays. They are not comfortable with the largest literary uh, function. Uh, and most of you have already mentioned uh, the connections with novels, with other forms of literature, and I wonder whether you feel that British poetry is separated out from, is in a sense crystallized away from a general literary expression, or whether British poetry is British poetry uh, as merely one form, uh, a choice that you have deliberately made, you and other poets that you know, but that there are other channels, kinds, sorts of expression available to you. Can we, uh, I think we must go from Danny to Patricia and thereby end uh, where we began. Um, well, I, um, I suppose I have to talk from personal experience. So my ambition is to write the next poem and then the one after. The point, the problem is that I managed to complete to my own satisfaction about six poems a year. I happen to be like so many others, uh, 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 someone who needs to write. And uh, I find that writing poetry, uh, I write it uphill, whereas when it comes to prose, I can write it downhill, as it were. So I occupy myself uh, in between poems when I can't write poems by writing uh, prose, some essays or uh, plays or whatever. Uh, it's uh, a secondary function as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, every poet who worth his salt wants to make his prose uh, not, one shouldn't be ashamed of one's prose, as it were. In fact, I distrust poets who can't <coughs> write good prose or reasonable prose. Uh, so I'm, I'm afraid that's a very personal response. I think it's absolutely wonderful that poets in America can exist just by being poets. Um, the only poet I know in England at the present time who lives exclusively from his poetry um, is Ted Hughes. Um, Seamus Heaney, um, for instance, has to come and um, teach creative writing at Harvard in order to live. Um, the way of living well, poetry. most of us have to do something else. I'm a publisher. Now, in other words, by inclination, um, what I'd like to do is live exclusively um, doing nothing except writing poetry. Um, and we have a, we have a, a book in um, England called Who's Who. Um, <laughs> and. Um, 
they, they, when you're asked to be in it, they send you a form which says, um, what are your publications? And it says, what is your job? And then it has a section which says, recreations and hobbies. Now, I work as a publisher. Um, but in recreations and hobbies, I put publishing. <laughs> um, because that, that's, I mean, I regard that as a, as a sideline. But um, um, it's something I have to do because I have to live. Um, and I think it's no different from anybody else no, on this platform. not quite with the question. Well, what, what, what <laughs> I, I really want to know whether you feel that there is in your short, I mean, you have answered the question, but the other part of it about a poet having to live uh, and thereby doing something else is not the question, which was really whether you see uh, an attractiveness in alternative modes of expression besides verse uh, mm -hmm. uh, as something that we feel uh, in America at least on the whole most poets do not. I think it would be nice um, to be able to write a good novel. Um, I've actually tried writing stories but I can't write dialogue and I can't create character and my gifts are kind of um, strictly limited. Um, I enjoy writing criticism sometimes. Um, I really do. Um, it gives me great pleasure. Uh, well, I don't mind writing book reviews, but I don't love doing it. And that's really my, my other activity. I primarily would put my energy into writing verse, and I'd certainly do it, as it were, early in the morning when I'm fresh, and then I'd move on to uh, writing prose and answering letters afterwards. And I think that's the way the priorities have to be worked out, because I don't teach. I work as a freelance writer. I have, therefore, to live by poetry readings and uh, book reviewing and uh, other things, uh, like, for example, writing uh, words for a cassette describing all 37 of Shakespeare's plays to be sold to tourists at Stratford-on-Avon. <laughs> and uh, that sort of thing is, is fun to do, but I don't think I'd ever, <laughs> I, I'd ever want to be. It's very easy, because if you get the Encyclopedia Britannica, you'll find there's a little bit about three inches long on each of the 37 plays, so you just uh, condense and, and adapt. But, um, I would like to write a novel. I did try once. Uh, I worked in advertising as a copywriter for 18 years. And there was one occasion when I knew that I was going to be sacked. In fact, I think I actually had been sacked. <laughs> and and I, I went into the British Museum Library, now known as the British Library, and I sat up in the gallery and I wrote what I thought was a terribly good pornographic novel. <laughs> but it, it never got anywhere terribly far, because uh, I once took it to one of these very shady men in, in Soho, and he flipped through it, and he said, no, this is far too good for my customers. <laughs> so the, it, it, it failed there, and it failed also with the Olympia Press in Paris. <laughs> and, and all that happened was that two chapters were published in Ambit, the avant-garde magazine I previously mentioned. And so it appeared in magazine form, in a sense, in a small portion. But even more interesting to me, there was a French science fiction editor, and he pinched these two chapters, which were all about the royal family. <laughs> and he put them into a French anthology of British science fiction, which was, uh, 
which was called Katastrophe. So there it is. And actually it translated very well into French, I think. I mean, I couldn't imagine that, in fact, it had lost very much. And uh, as a very quick rider, I know this is, I'm going over time, I'd like to say that uh, I do think that sometimes a translator can have an affinity with the translated author, and that's what you need. I think Elaine Feinstein has it with Svetsaeva, a name I'm always very bad at pronouncing. But if you read her translations of the poems, uh, you find, I think, a very great uh, sympathy between the two. And uh, the only other thing, uh, again, anecdotal a bit, uh, Mandelstam, the great Russian poet. Now, if you look at any translations of Mandelstam into English, particularly American ones, you'll see they come out in little lines about three words long and no rhymes anywhere. Now, I went to a, a symposium on, on Mandelstam translation in Cambridge about two years ago, and uh, we had the panel talking about translation, and I read a lot of these translations. Uh, and then in the evening, Brodsky was reading Mandelstam in the original Russian, and then reading a, an English translation afterwards. Now, in the original Russian, he doesn't sound like that at all. He's not in little three-word lines, and he's not hip and with it, and all these other things that you might think he might be. He sounds like A.E. Hausman. He's, he's just one sort of uh, uh, rhyming quatrain after another. And I think that one can be led astray a little bit in, by the, the idea of making it new. But possibly a really good translation of Mandelstam, which may be impossible, would be much more like Hausmann and like our traditional old-fashioned English verse than like anything that Pound might have written in honor of Propertius. <laughs> Will you return for us to this question yes. of the other genres? Um, the, I, it's been mentioned before this evening that, that we took various poets this morning. I chose Douglas Dunn and uh, Dennis Enright. And one of the reasons, it's curious that this question should have come up right at the end of this discussion, because I didn't mention it this morning, but it was very much in my mind. Um, both those two, um, not only are writers of things other than poetry, but Douglas Dunn has um, actually declared himself um, rather in love with the idea of being a writer, the concept of being a writer. Um, he would, at the moment, I think, put poetry first, but uh, he's written plays, he's written prose, I myself am very much in favor with the concept, uh, in, in favor of the concept of being a writer. I like it as a concept. I feel that um, if one, one can regard oneself primarily as a poet, um, certainly there, there obviously has to be, um, it doesn't have to be all equally apportion one's energy. One can regard oneself principally as a poet, but I do, I, I do positively um, enjoy and advocate uh, the idea of being a writer. I think writing prose um, does a lot 
for one's poetry. I think in all sorts of, perhaps not um, universally considered ways, I think, for example, that reviewing uh, gives one the sort of confidence, uh, for better or worse, um, I'm not thinking how it, how it sounds to the reader, but to have to declare one's um, opinion openly, where it's going to be read by a lot of people, does improve one's, um, one's confidence, one, one's ability to take risks, to, um, to invite um, scorn and misunderstanding in um, ways that are connected more with one's poetry. And so I'd just like to finish by saying both uh, uh, both these two poets, and, and, and Douglas Dunn has been, of course, absolutely specific about it. This, this idea, um, not of the poet, but the writer. And I, I like it, and I think that's really how I do think myself. Very good. Uh, I hope that you will forgive the, the um, obtuseness of the questions and agree with me that f despite them, our four guests have managed to reveal a great deal not only about British poetry but about themselves and to thank them for coming to do so.